Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open the Word of God to the portion that we call John's Gospel. This morning we're going to continue reading together, studying together John 17. It's part of our series in John. And we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 19 specifically. So John 17 beginning in verse 6. This is a continuation of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says this, beginning in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. In it do we hope and pray even now, not by my strength or our might, but by your Holy Spirit, you would do great things in our hearts for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. My uh, eight-year-old daughter, God love her, is a beautiful tapper, by which I don't mean tap dancer, but a tapper, and not with her feet, but with her finger, and usually on my arm, my elbow, just a tap, 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 or a tug, 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 and always followed by, Daddy, can I have this, or can I have that, what say you? Or, Daddy, do you know what I really want? And I either say, sweetie, you can have whatever you want, so long as you stop tapping me. Or, when my more parental senses hold sway, I might say, sweetie, probably not right now. Again, you remember last week, ramen for breakfast, okay? Probably not right now, because it's not the best thing for you. Drink some water. Have a celery stick. You need to go to bed on time. This will make you a a healthier and a happier human being. Do you know what's best for you? If you could tap, 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 or tug, tug, tug on Jesus for anything, if you could have Jesus pray, anything for you, what would it be? Our question today is a next step question. It's not whether we know that Jesus does pray for us. We've seen that Jesus does pray for us, that Jesus is praying for us. Today, it's do we know what Jesus prays for us, what He prioritizes and how what He prioritizes is to shape our existence for His glory in this world. This morning, we see that Jesus has put His glory on the line in the distinctiveness of His disciples. And as a church, that's a line that we're called against all kinds of pulls and tugs to hold faithfully. Have you ever felt it slipping, that line? You ever felt it slipping? You ever wondered if you just lose your grip on that line entirely? Have you ever condemned yourself because you've so muddied and then buried over the line again and again and again and again? What I want you to hear this morning is that Jesus is still praying for you. And for that reason, supremely, because He holds us in His hands, because He holds our very hearts, because He holds us fast because he will not deny himself because he is committed to his glory in his people we will yet grow to be his people to his glory and we will be helped if along the way you and I are gripped by the gripping things 
of our praying Lord Jesus. So, let's come to our passage. And first, if you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, to Jesus' grace-filled perspective of His people. He begins in verse 6 that He's manifested God's name, who God truly is, to them. We just say right there, beloved, that a faithful understanding of God's Word and all it means to really teach to us requires intentionally careful reading. So, who's the them to whom Jesus has manifested God? We have to ask and answer that question because we can recall several instances in this gospel from John 6 or John 8 or John 12 and so on, where in one sense Jesus has manifested God, who He truly is, He's manifested God to the whole world. He's preached to the multitudes everywhere He's gone. He's crossed all barriers, political, social, economic, ethnic, to love all souls, and He's never done it without being the Word of God incarnate, the Word made flesh. All the Father delighted to reveal of Himself, the Son delighted to quite literally manifest. So it should be striking to us when Jesus sort of restricts His manifesting work to a certain group of people. So again, a careful reading of verse 6 in the context of all John's written so far qualifies this as a particular work of what we might call sovereign grace. And the verse says exactly that. Jesus has manifested God to, to whom? The people whom you, Father, gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me. And because of that, Jesus has effectually revealed God to their hearts. So, if we acknowledge that Jesus revealed God, we acknowledge that Jesus revealed God wherever He went, to whomever He met, and if we then ask the question, say, from John 6, after he's fed the 20,000, as only God can, why, at least for that time, did 19,989 of them finally walk away from Jesus and the remaining 11 stay with him to this point in the text? Well, what do they say? Do you remember in John 6? Jesus asked them, if they also wanted to depart from Him, go away from Him, leave Him. And they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, did they say that because they only were privy to the external, the external revelation of God in Christ on that occasion where everybody's getting all kinds of bread and fish? Of course not. There were literally thousands of satisfied bellies. <laughs> so why did these 11 out of thousands stand fast with Jesus upon the Word of God? Why did they do that? And the answer is that ultimately they were privy to the internal revelation of God in Christ. 
And that is what Jesus is talking about here as he's praying to the Father. When he says he's manifested God to those God gave him, he means he's made God known to them in a saving way. He's given them life eternal. He's caused them to be born again. He's alighted their hearts to trust the truth that redeems the soul. You and I are not meant to mistake divine causality. We're to marvel at it. We're to bow before it and worship the God of all grace towards us. The disciples are gathered around Jesus here, and Jesus would have them know that nothing distinguishes them from the vilest rejecter except the free, eternal, and determined grace of God the Father. From all eternity, He has a chosen people that He's committed to the saving work of His Son, and for that reason alone, they will come to believe the gospel. Do we ever just stop in worship at the manner of love that God has bestowed upon us that you and I should ever be called children of God? It's a love that's rooted in the soils of a grace that knew no beginning, has no end, though it had a mighty and effectual appearance and application in time and space and in our hearts and lives, and it continues to do so today. Do you see the effect of it in the disciples' hearts and lives? God gave them to Jesus. Jesus revealed God to them. And, he says, I believe it's the end of verse 6 there, and they have what? Kept your word. They've kept the word of God. The divine election of a person is absolutely a mystery to us. But the application of that grace Again, in time and space, we're talking true conversion. That should not be as much of a mystery to us. It has a definite effect. A definite effect. It creates a person and a people who, if you look at verses 7 and 8, have heard the Word of God about Jesus and then come to know the Word of God about Jesus and receive the Word of God about Jesus and believe the Word of God about Jesus and keep the Word of God as it all relates to Jesus. Do you remember John chapter 8? Jesus asks some professing believers, professing believers, why don't you get what I say? Why why don't you understand my word? If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? And he answers for them. Do you remember what he answered them? He says, it's because you're not of God. 
It's because you're not born of God. Because if you were born of God, you would hear me and you would hear my words as the very words of God. You would know them, receive them, believe them, keep them. But as it is, you're only proving to give the lie to your profession of faith. As it is, you're only proving to be inauthentic disciples. So this is critical. This is critical to realize. You ready? God's people are Jesus' people, are Bible people. And not just in a lip service kind of way, but in a, I live upon every word that comes from the mouth of God kind of way. There was a part of me this week that when I thought about this, my heart grew very burdened as I thought about so many pastorates and so many pulpits and so many congregations, not exclusive of our own. But beloved, listen, there are entire assemblies, massive churches, and small ones. And they're centered upon any number of things Pastoral acclaim, personality, social agendas, service styles, excellent programs, but hardly the Word of God. It's a fact that biblical illiteracy in churches is abnormally common. Which is terrifying, given what our Lord says here, that His people are manifest and known to the world as a people devoted to the Christ of the Word and the Word of Christ. It's the Word of God to us. More than just true, it's the truth. And it's even life itself. According to Jesus, is that how you read the Bible? Is that how you hear the Bible? Is that how you receive the Bible? Is that how you talk about the Word of God as really the Word of God? Is that how you pray the Bible? Is that how we sing the truths of the Bible? Is that how we apply the Bible? Is that how you and I minister by the Bible? Is that how we thank God for it? Oh, God, thank you for speaking and giving us a book. What are you and I doing to hear and come to know, receive, believe, and keep more of the Word of God? Still, <clears throat> something I want you to see before we head on here is how grace-filled Jesus is in His appraisal of His people. We know Peter, at one point along the way, wanted to stop Jesus from dying on the cross. You will never die on the cross. So he's a, he's a stumbling block to our salvation, at one point Peter is. And then there's Philip, right? Philip's always sort of walking around like, huh, what? I don't get it. 
Never get it, Lord. They're trying to keep children away from Jesus, and they're doing ministry in their own strength, and they're close enough to the cross to, to lean upon it, and yet they're gathering together, and they're having a debate on which one of them is going to be Muhammad Ali, right? Which one of them is going to be the greatest? Yet here's Jesus before the throne of God. And he says, They have kept your word. <laughs> what? <laughs> What's going on here? Oh, dear ones, listen. It's Jesus being our Savior. It's a sneak peek, if you will, of how He's interceding for us right now. Jesus is not ignorant of reality. He rebuked Peter for Peter's ignorance. This is a reminder that Jesus always, always, always views you and I through the lens of His grace. What it has declared about us justified. And what it promises to make of us a holy people. To have come by grace, to believe in Jesus, is to have come by Jesus to be forgiven all our sins and to be counted righteous and to have been truly, eternally changed in all of it by none less than God Himself. We are now the word-keeping people of Christ. As needed, and we all need it, I just want you to find peace there this morning. In Jesus' grace-filled perspective of His people, He still today, this moment, pleads His best before God about you and me, however sinful we may be. And so let's come now to his glory-minded petitions for his people, starting in verse 9. And he says something there that tends to catch us off guard. He's on the cusp of the cross, where we think he'd be praying for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. And here he is on the cusp of the cross, we think, he's going to pray for the world. But he couldn't be clearer, could he? He's not praying for the world. Do you see that? See it in the text. He's praying for his disciples. Which, now to be fair, which in a way is to pray best of all for the world. To pray for them is to pray for those who are going to go on, if you go to the book of Acts, they're going to go on, and they're going to turn the world right side up by preaching the gospel all over the place. To pray for them is to pray for those whose ministry would eventually lead to your conversion and my conversion. Or at least that's what Jesus alludes to in verse 20, but I didn't read that far, we'll get to it next week. So there is that side of it. But mainly, there is a sense of his special care. His special care 
for his people. It's like the high priest in Exodus 28 that Julianne kindly read for us at the beginning of service. He goes before God to intercede not indiscriminately for the world, but particularly for the chosen people of God at that time. He wore a breastplate bearing two onyx stones with the names of Israel's children on them, six on one, six on the other. His concern as the high priest was for them, the people of God. So here, only in that greatest way, Jesus, our high priest, intercedes for the true children of God, those who have been born again and will be born again. Don't you ever think you are unknown to Jesus. Don't be singing, as we love to sing, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And fail to realize that is not individualistic hyperbole. That's true. Jesus is praying for me. And He's praying for you. He has a special care for us. I don't know if you remember from our time uh, in Job a few weeks ago, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Job was aware of other women in the world. But his heart and his eyes were only for his yet imperfect bride, And just so, Jesus came into the world. He's aware of all the the peoples, right? Jesus came into the world because God so loved the world to bless the world with His truth and grace, but His heart and special focus was always on His yet imperfect bride, the church. Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, how is a husband to love his wife? Is it not as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Jesus prays here for her, for his people, his bride. And as we head into his petitions, I just want us to see the situation that leads to them. If you look at verses 10 to the middle of verse 11, Jesus says something both assuring and stirring. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Jesus has tied his glory as the truth and Christ of God to this little ragtag band of disciples. Think about that. The world makes nothing of them. Again, as you move through the book of Acts, as you move through church history, what are you going to find? The world kills all these guys. Throws them on the trash heap, just like Jesus. The world makes nothing of them. In fact, their own people counted them as cast-offs. And yet, the Christ of God has tied His glory to them and to their impending existence for Him in this world. He's tied His glory to you and me. And that is assuring 
and it's stirring. It's assuring because it means we cannot finally fail Him. Jesus will not deny Himself. He is committed to His glory. So as He's tied His glory to us, He's also devoted His all-sufficient grace to us, and we're going to need that all-sufficient grace because, you see, He's not only committed us to His glory, but He's committed His glory to us. And He's done so in light of the fact that while He's departing now, what are we doing? What are they doing? They're remaining in the world. We're still here. He's there. We're here. Jesus wants us to be a display of His glory in this sinful world. And that is why we're first in His mind as He's praying here in John 17. That's why He takes to praying for us. Because we're going to need it. These petitions are the surety of Christ's glory in the church, in the world. What He pleads for us here so long ago, is still living and active and effective in us today. In fact, I have no doubt that He's still pleading them for us right now, this very hour. So let's consider them briefly together. The first you're going to find in the middle of verse 11 through verse 12, and it concerns our divine and word-centered preservation. Okay? Divine and word-centered preservation. Jesus asks our Holy Father to keep us in His name. It's not that we would keep ourselves. It's not exactly that you and I would persevere, but that God would preserve. God would preserve us. It's that He'd keep us true to Him, and this is always critical, true to Him as He's revealed Himself, given His name to Christ. In other words, Jesus prays that God would keep us Christ-saturated and therefore bound together, notice that, together in the truth of the only true God. Really, it's that we live above the dividing lines of earth. It's that we give the highest respect to our familial bonds in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that we'd be enabled to put and keep first things first. And if, as we look around, we need some encouragement about God's bonding and then keeping power, Jesus draws our minds, if you look at verse 12 now, to His keeping power in history with these disciples. He says that while He was with the disciples... He kept them straight and true to the glory of God. He says stronger still that He has guarded them. Think about that. Jesus as your guardian. He's guarded them. And that Judas aside, not one of them has been lost. Have they gone astray from time to time? Sure. Have they stumbled and fallen on their face sometimes? Okay but not a single one of them have been lost because Jesus has guarded them. I mentioned Judas just then, ever the warning to us. The point is not to say that he was one of Christ's, only to be disavowed and lost. 
nor does the note of God's sovereignty in his life remove the consequences of his responsible actions in his life and specifically against Jesus Christ. It's all to say that while Judas looked the part of a disciple of Christ, he never really was a disciple of Christ. And that when it comes to locating a most stable thing in a world of instability, there is nothing as stable as the rock of Scripture. Listen, even the keeping power of Jesus was subject to the fulfillment of every line of Scripture. Think about that. Judas is obviously, in this sense, a unique case, but nevertheless a warning. So listen now. We can look the part of a disciple, but to the degree that our hearts move away from the truth of God in Christ, in the Bible, to that very degree do we endanger our souls like Judas. So Jesus prays. He prays for His disciples. Father, hold them right there. The truth of God in Christ, in the Bible. Hold them there together. And what I pray stills your souls is that as Jesus exhibited on earth, so now above, He will not lose even one of you. Our Father will not lose a child. Our Shepherd will not lose even one of His sheep. And not because a lot in us and everything around us won't tear at us and threaten our endurance, it will. Just think on what met these disciples along the way the rest of their lives. Intolerance of the world, the court of law, prison cells, ecclesiastical debates, blackmail, Paul and so on. But in the end, not even martyrdom could turn them back from the truth about Jesus or from solidarity with one another in that truth. Most of the New Testament letters, I don't know if you know this, most of the New Testament letters are written to churches with a heart to secure those churches in Jesus and they're written from prison or they're written while the guy is on death row for Jesus. He's about to die. He's about to have his head cut off. Whatever it may be, but he's writing to the church to secure them in Jesus. That's how much they loved and cared after each other. And the glory of Christ is displayed in that. It is a great injury to Christ's glory in the church when we divide over things the Bible clearly articulates so that the division, when we boil it down, is really just a break over the sufficiency and authority of Scripture to direct our lives together. What and or who banded and bonded these disciples together all the way to the end? Was it not the life-giving, all-authoritative Word of God exposited 
as Jesus Christ. Was it not the Word incarnate with all authority and sufficiency for them that held them together? If you care about the glory of Christ in this church, in this world, you will care about our unity. And as you care about our unity, you will care about our solidarity above all in the Word of God. The family that prays together stays together in the Word of God. So let's pray with Jesus, Father, keep your people. Next, picking up in verse 13, he prays for our undaunted and word-centered joy. Not just our preservation, but our joy. Maybe you recall this from earlier this year when Pastor George preached from 1 Thessalonians. But uh, Paul rejoiced in God there at the beginning of the letter. And he did that because God's electing love for the Thessalonians had come clear in their lives. And one of the questions we always want to ask is, how did it come clear? It's always good to interrogate the text with reverence to it, right? How did God's electing love come clear in the lives of that church? And it says... It came clear in that they received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that they became an example for all believers for all time. they, They later exhibited what God's answer to Jesus' prayer right here looks like. And it is unquestionably supernatural. We do not tend to stick with things that make us hated. Even less if it results in real difficulty, trial, persecution, and still less do we stick with it with joy. Hallelujah! They're going to cut off my head. Praise God! But that's why Paul called it the joy of the Holy Spirit. And why Jesus says the joy that He wants to be in you, in me, is not just any old joy. Whose joy is it? His joy. My joy. I want it in them. It's a joy that's unknown to the world. The world knows nothing about it. And you and I were prone to lose it. Or misplace it. The battle is real to endure the cross for the joy set before us out of the sight of these eyes. I talk to Christians and pastors on a pretty regular basis. And the most common thread right now is, Brian, I am so beat. I am so ground down. I am so worn thin. I'm sad. (laughs) Spiritually, I'm burdened and sorrowful more than I have ever been before. I'm discouraged and even depressed. And I need help. I need counsel. 
I've read this book and that book. I've gone to this specialist and that specialist. And I'm still not exactly sure what to do with it all. What say you? Well, I admit that every situation has its differences. But if there is a cure-all, perhaps it starts by gathering around Jesus here and hearing Him pray for you. Hearing Him pray for you, as He still does today. Father, take my word. On account of which they're hated, and by it, in a way that confounds the world, make them to know my joy. Listen, I could give you a dozen books or more, and George probably a hundred more, on how to fight for Christian joy. But the joy of Christ is first and foremost rooted in the Word of Christ. We can little know the joy of Jesus if we little know the Word of Christ. We have a book that contains the very words of God and it is replete, it is filled with His love, His truth, His grace, His promises, His supports. And yet we often find ourselves too busy or just too worldly to just crack it open. And then we wonder why we're sad. We wonder why we're so prone to crack the first sign of any difficulty at all. And it's because our wills and our minds and our hearts have been filled with the doom and gloom of a fallen world instead of the truth and grace of the Word of God. We watch too much of the news and not enough of the good news. There's a reason we're told in Colossians chapter 3 to set our minds on things where? Above. Where Christ is. In Him we've overcome the world. It's unlikely that even Jesus would have endured the cross without His heart laying hold of the truth of glory beyond it. We need to be more heavenly minded. And it's the task of the Word of God to make us that. All that to say, Jesus here prays against our spiritual discouragement. He prays not against sorrows. I want to be very clear here. He prays not against our sorrows. He prays against the ability of those sorrows to steal away our joy in the truth. The Christian life is, as one old hymn puts it, a sorrow filled with joy. 
But Jesus prays for His glory that the latter, His joy, would tower amid all the others, all those sorrows. He prays that His Word would secure His joy in us. Last then, verses 15 to 18. He prays for our missional and word-centered holiness. Now listen, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you're feeling it out, you hear holiness, maybe you think more about religious seclusion than gospel-spreading mission. And if you do, know that you're not alone. A lot of Christians and churches think about holiness just like that. But Jesus does not. <laughs> and so it is a, it's a wild thing. It's always been sort of a confounding thing to me that such an emphasis as we find in these verses would be like novel in a church something relegated to serious Christianity. Or that it'd be just thought strange or unchristian or even anti-evangelistic that we should be set apart to the distinguishing beauty of a growing obedience to all the Word of God. Do you hear what Jesus says as He prays? He does not want us, verse 15, to be taken out of the world. He doesn't want that. Sometimes we think that would have been nice. Conversion, glorification. Jesus doesn't think that was the best thing. What He wants is for God to keep us in the world and then to enable us to be faithful ambassadors of our new nature while we're in the world. There was a time when you and I were of the world by God's grace. Now we're not. We're still in the world by that grace. We share in the newness of Christ. Again, you and I have been born again, born from above, born of God. And thus we're to be representatives of that to the world. Representative of the power of grace and the power of glory in this world, like Jesus was. And so for His glory, He clearly wants us to be a missional people, but then He cannot be clearer about this. We do not become a missional people the way that Jesus wants us to be a missional people without becoming or by becoming more like the world. You see that? The number that have gone wrong right there are beyond counting. If we want to win the world, let us be what the world wants and throw in a little bit of Jesus. Sorry, but no, and not here. If we want to see people truly converted, out of the world, by all means, let us keep ourselves from being unnecessarily off-putting. But what we need to be most of all is unapologetically Christian. 
That is, what we need to be most of all is unapologetically and gloriously biblical. Here with missions on the brain, Jesus does not pray exactly that we would all be great communicators of the gospel. He first prays that we'd all be greatly sanctified by the word of truth. Now, listen, it stands to reason that as we're that, we will be about all the things that put the glory of Christ on full display in the world, including having a passion for sharing the gospel with everybody. But, what need does the world have for a word that has no evident power to actually save and gather a divine counterculture to its own broken one. What need does it have for a gospel that by the looks of it has no ability to solve what plagues us most, which is sin? If a lost person comes to a gathering of this church or has some fellowship with you as a Christian out in the world only to find that there is little discernible difference between us and them and the way that we live our lives, what need have they for the Bible's Jesus? On the contrary, what if in their interaction with us here and there and everywhere, they meet with a people with a certain distinctiveness that they find it really, really hard to shake. (laughs) What if we were what Christ is here praying for us to be? What if we were a holy people? What if we were a truly godly church? What if we were a community in whom the Word of Christ dwells richly, not poorly, richly? Oh, friends, Jesus did not save us to leave us worldlings. He saved us to make us wordlings. And in that, to be a witness in and to this world of another world. That is missional. Don't let anybody tell you it's not. Okay? Okay. If necessary, it's time to turn in nominal and cultural expressions of Christianity for the biblical one. It's time, as always, for us to be a people who take advantage of all this church offers with hope in the interceding Christ to equip you in the Word of God and then send you out into the world for Him as part of His set-apart people. Beloved, the prayer here is about Christ's glory in the church, in the world, as He departs from it. And if you need any further assurance about the effectiveness of this prayer, about our endurance, about our joy, about our holiness, as we will need, you can just look at verse 19. It's Jesus' stamp. It is His guarantee on His praying for His people. You see what He says there to close? 
that they may on the whole be sanctified in truth. I consecrate myself for their sake. What does he mean? He means that his impending intercession on the cross is the guarantee of his eternal intercession for us at the throne of God above. Will the heavenly Father suffer the death of His Son to be anything but absolutely effective in our lives? Will God give us Christ and not give us what Christ desires for us when those desires are the very desires of the Father? Oh dear ones, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. He prays nothing, but it will be so. The cross of Jesus says not only that we will be saved, but that we will be kept, that we will be overjoyed, that we will be sanctified. By His payment, you can bank on it. And you can pray upon it as well. Jesus prays to be glorified in us, and that's a call for us to join Him. It's a call for us to join him in tap, 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 tug, tug, tug. At the throne of God above. For what will make us happiest and healthiest as a church in this world. May he grant it even now to us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray not only for ourselves, but for all your people all over the world who have this hour or some hour near set under the preaching of your word. May it break hardened hearts, act like a hammer. May it set ablaze a fire in our souls, let it be the everlasting flame. We look to you for it, for you alone can raise the dead and keep us alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.